If you were to take a walk <clears throat> down the Niantic boardwalk, maybe you've done this, you'll note that there are a series of uh, memorial benches along on the left. And half a dozen or so benches down, you would see a bench that says these words. It says, Mike G., love God, love others. Mike Genitazio was an elder here at Groton Bible Chapel for several years. His family attended here for many years. This is a picture with my oldest son, who's now 18, uh, with Mike when he was a little guy. Uh, and Mike was just a tremendous... Uh, soft-spoken, servant-hearted leader who loved God's Word. Mike was saved through the Navigator's ministry, and he had a passion for uh, Bible memorization and for personal evangelism. And uh, we miss him dearly. He went home to be with the Lord uh, just about 10 years ago from a short but intense battle with pancreatic cancer. And, you know, that moniker on his memorial bench, Love God and Love Others, was something that he really lived out. He was the director of public works in East Lyme, and his memorial service really spoke to that. And it was, it was a powerful, powerful time. I was thinking about him this week and this message that we're looking at this morning and just decided to, you know, name the message right after, uh, after that. Now, this is obviously not uh, love God, love others. It's not something that originates with Mike. It's, it's certainly very biblical. It's even the essence of the Shema that Zach preached on a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to see it's repeated here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's essentially what Jesus answers when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the essence of where we're going this morning, and we'll come back to that idea over and over again. I want to just, before we get into the text this morning, uh, remind us a little bit about the structure of Deuteronomy, give us a, a reminder of background. First, Deuteronomy can first be characterized as a series of sermons by Moses to his people, to the second generation of those who've come out of Egypt, the, the children's generation, if you will, who are now grown, and he's exhorting them to obey where their parents had disobeyed. But from a structural standpoint, it wasn't until about the 1940s that we knew that uh, Deuteronomy is patterned after the Near Eastern vassal treaties, that is between lords and vassals or the people of the culture at the time in the Near East, about the 15th century BC. And as we, uh, as, as archaeologists and scholars looked at these treaties, recognized the same pattern existed in Deuteronomy. And isn't it like God, and we see this throughout scripture, that he speaks to us uh, both in the content or, or the structure rather of the Old and New Testament and the authors themselves uh, within the cultural context in which they live and, and, and uh, exist and, and write and so on and so forth. And certainly also contains each writer's personality and so forth. So Deuteronomy mirrors one of these treaties. It begins with a preamble and a historical prologue. That's the, what we looked at in the fall. If you're new here at Groton Bible Chapel, I'd encourage you to go on our website, go to our YouTube page, watch or listen to the first six or seven messages on Deuteronomy uh, from the fall. That covers the historical prologue. Um, the preamble and the historical prologue. The section we're in now are really the stipulations of the covenant, the, the nature of, of what's required by both parties, if you will. And then we get in a little bit later, probably in the fall, we'll get into the sanctions, that is the blessings and the cursings and so forth. And so we're, this pattern uh, is something that we can look at in the culture of the time, but it's more than just the framework for how Deuteronomy is outlined or written. It's even something such as the, the, the fact that there were two stone tablets. And, and I want to look at a, a quick, just share with you a quick video clip this morning to kind of illustrate two points about the stone tablets. And, I, and let me tell you, put it out front, it's a, this clip is a little bit irreverent, um, and we're going to use that in an illustrative way to learn something about uh, Deuteronomy and the tablets specifically. So take a look. 
judge you all for laughing. <laughs> well, here's the point that that clip illustrates. By the way, that's a parody of Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, which if you're under 50, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, long before Charlton Heston was ever a spokesman for the NRA, he starred as Moses in The Ten Commandments. And, and when we think about probably many of us that are, say, 40, 50 or older, The Ten Commandments, we probably picture Charlton Heston with the two stone tablets, right? And there are five commandments written on one side and, and five on the other. But the reality is that the stone tablets would have contained the whole law on each tablet. And this was something else that was also patterned after the Near Eastern treaties in that the Lord and the vassals each received received a copy of the covenant agreement and then they were placed oftentimes in the palace or the place where the ruler lived with this idea that both parties would hearken back to and honor the terms of this covenant agreement that we've made. So all of a sudden as we learn this about how Deuteronomy was written within the context of the culture at the time, we have this like mind-blowing insight to the fact that, that Moses is given two stone tablets that contain copies of the law that are then placed in the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God himself which is what's in mind is that the people would look to that presence not just for the presence of God but as a reminder to what they've been covenanted to in a special and unique relationship with God so there's a little bit of a background there uh, regarding Deuteronomy that brings us to chapter 10 and for the sake of time this morning we're going to pick it up in verse 12 the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 10 uh, cover three sort of resets in that Moses is recounting uh, in his history of, of their recent journey. The first reset is Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the two new copies of the, of the tablets and then placing them in the Ark of the Covenant. The second reset is that Aaron, the high priest, dies and his son Eliezer succeeds him uh, as high priest. And then the third reset, if you will, is that the tribe of the Levites is set apart unto the Lord uh, for a unique purpose, to serve him in the tabernacle and to serve, uh, to serve the Lord in, in a unique role. And, and that's because of their obedience to God and their zeal for the Lord, uh, as Moses recounts in Exodus chapter 32. So again, to understand the background of everything that Moses is summarizing here, I uh, really encourage you to read Exodus 32 to 34 uh, to get that history, history. But nonetheless, that brings us to chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 12. And, uh, and so as we look at the text this morning, before we do so, I uh, just want to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, as we approach the Scripture this morning, Lord, we recognize that it is your unique word to us. Lord, as we study this amazing passage of Scripture, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. God, you be our teacher our instructor this morning. Lord, there are so many distractions in our lives today. There's so much hardship. It, it feels at this time, Lord, I just have this sense that there's a lot of spiritual attack in this church community, in this church family this morning. There are relationships that are strained. There are uh, friendships that are being tested. There are job situations that are tenuous. There are physical maladies and injuries and diseases. And Lord, we just ask that you would go before us, that you would bring us to a point of unity and wholeness, that you would speak to us from your word, that we would hear and obey. This morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, chapter 10 rather, we're going to read from verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Moses says, 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him, remain faithful to him, take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous like the stars of the sky. Now that passage should read familiar to you as it's really a summation of much of the material uh, that Moses has talked about in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, and 8 as he gets here uh, into chapter 10. And, and really what's at stake in the beginning of this passage is a sort of summation, an injunction to come back to this idea of what it means to walk with God. Walk with him, fear him, love him, obey him. And do that in a manner that Moses will spell out in a very practical way. It's likely that uh, Micah the prophet, hundreds of years later, is keying off of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, and this passage when he writes, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This sort of summary statement of which uh, we learn of God. But then there's this really curious phrase that follows, actually sort of a mixed metaphor. He says, therefore, circumcise your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcise your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer. Now, it's, I think at this point, probably most of us understand what circumcision is. Let me tell you what it's not. And I learned this from uh, someone who was teaching a group of boys in a camp setting, and they were embarrassed to talk about the nature of God's covenant, the removal of the foreskin from male anatomy, this, which is an odd thing, right? Let's admit that. But this person taught their boys in this elementary school camp setting that it was the removal of a piece of uh, skin from the forehead uh, because they were, again, embarrassed to kind of talk about this. And I can only imagine the confusion of these uh, boys when they became men and had sons of their own and were at the hospital and, you know, would just leave, it, leave you uh, to wrestle with your imagination there. <laughs> but circumcision is this, is, from our point of view, at least an odd thing. In our time, it's, of course, done universally, not just to particular people, for hygienic reasons, right? But at this time, this was something that Paul said that was done in the body that marked God's people uniquely as his, it was something that was physically uh, symbolic and indicated something that God had done in, in calling his people out uniquely to himself. And, and so now Moses comes along and he addresses circumcision, but from a different angle, he says, circumcise your hearts, which is a mixed metaphor of sorts. Now, we know that heart in the scripture, in the Bible, the heart is not this beating organ in our chest, right? It's the seat of who we are. It's the essence of our, our being. It's our mind, our will, and our emotions. And what Moses is calling his people to is to be tenderhearted, 
to not be stiff-necked, the metaphor we talked about last week, this idea of being, uh, not being too prideful to submit ourselves to the yoke of God's leadership. That's what God is calling his people to here. This idea of circumcision of the heart finds an analogous uh, illustration in the New Covenant, that is you and me who are believers in Jesus Christ today, in baptism. Baptism is the analog of circumcision in the New Covenant. It is something physical that we do that is symbolic and pictures something that's taken place internally. Paul talks about this in Romans 6 when he says, as we, we enter the waters of baptism, we symbolically die with Christ physically because we've already died with Christ spiritually if we've placed our faith and trust in what he's done for us on the cross. Likewise, when we come out of the waters of baptism, we symbolically are raised to new life with Christ because in our spiritual reality, we have been raised to new life with Christ. Belaboring the point, it's a physical reality that pictures a spiritual truth. And so Moses is helping his people make that jump from the rite and the ritual and the physical practice that it's supposed to be so much more than that. Now, even though baptism sort of replaces circumcision in the New Covenant, Paul, the apostle in particular, carries the notion of circumcision of the heart forward in the New Testament in his letters to the churches. Listen to what he says uh, to the Colossians. He says, You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Or to the Philippian Christians, he says, For it is we, speaking of those who are in Christ, who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. He's not talking about physical circumcision, but again, circumcision of the heart. It's even clearer, and I'll warn you that Paul gets a little wordy here, so hang with me. When Paul, it's almost like he's teaching from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, verse 16. He's expounding on what Moses says in Romans 2. And he's talking to Jewish Christians in Rome. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if, uncircumcised, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Note he's kind of going back and forth between the spiritual and the physical. A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having, having the letter of the law and circumcision. Hang in there. We're almost done. I knew you were psyched to come to church this morning to learn about circumcision of the heart. We're almost done on this topic, I promise you. Paul continues, he says, For a person who is not a Jew, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person who is a Jew is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision, here it is, is of the heart. Not by the spirit, but by the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And so Paul, again, is expounding on the very idea that Moses is hinting at in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that this is an issue of what's going on in here. In fact, what circumcision and baptism essentially are is cooperating with God in what he's already doing. Our obedience lines up in what, what God has already done in the transformation that's taken place in our hearts and lives. Something has changed as we've received Christ into our lives. And, and Moses actually says this is true of the Old Testament covenant people of God. As we get to the end of Deuteronomy, listen to what Moses says to the people. Uh, chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. Well, which one is it, Moses? 
Are, are we to circumcise our hearts or is God going to circumcise our hearts? Yes, both things are happening at the same time. God has moves in our hearts and we, as we are moved and our hearts are transformed, we obey him, cooperating with what he's already doing. This is in as much as what, what Paul says in Philippians in an oft-quoted from this platform scripture in Philippians 2 that says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, uh, so, no, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his purpose. Well, which one is it, Paul? Are we to work out our salvation even with fear and trembling? Or is it God who works in us to will and to work? Yes. Both things happen at the same time. We work out our salvation, and we're not talking, the Bible's not teaching that we earn our salvation by doing good works, by, by uh, you know, outweighing our good stuff from our bad stuff. No, the Bible's saying that we cooperate in obedience with a soft heart and a right heart with what God has done in our hearts. Belaboring the point on purpose this morning, the application of this for you and me is that the heart of the matter is that it's a matter of the heart. And God's people need to hear this. The heart of the matter is that it's a matter of the heart in the Old Testament and the New because our default setting is to just do religious stuff for the sake of doing religious stuff. And sometimes even with bitterness in our hearts, at least speaking for me. So one of the things I've wrestled with this week is, you know, what are the things in my, I'll use the term religious life, right? The, the sort of the day-to-day, -day, the week-to-week, the month-to-month -month things that I do, that I do just sort of out of obligation or duty or maybe apathy or complacency or, God forbid, even bitterness or resentment against God. You know, Amber was up here talking about sharing our faith in different contexts. Do I share my faith out of a sense of pressure and obligation or an overflowing joy in what Jesus has done? What about reading my Bible each day or, or my prayer life or even coming to church or giving of the overflow of God's goodness and generosity in my life? What among those things, what is the thing that I do that is just out of obligation or duty or worse, where I'm hard-hearted about it because whatever that thing is, I need to repent of that thing. And say, God, circumcise my heart. Help me to be tenderhearted toward you. You know, I think that's why Moses jumps from talking about sort of the general terms of walking with God and obeying God. Uses this illustration to really push his people to wrestle with what's going on inside. And then begins to talk about, in a very, very practical way, here's how you do this. Love the orphan, the widow, and the, and the foreigner. Really, the right term there uh, that Moses talks about when he uses the term alien in, in certain versions is the immigrant. And so we want to talk about the nature of what God calls it. Let me read the scripture here, just so that we're coming right off of the Bible itself. Uh, Moses says of God, he exercises, or executes rather, justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the resident alien, that would be foreigner or immigrant in our cultural context, giving him food and clothing. Next line, you are also to love the immigrant. Since you were resident aliens, you were immigrants in Egypt. Moses takes, as all of scripture does, the idea of God's transformative work in the hearts of people and he puts it into real life. Because this is where it challenges us. And I want to wrestle with this idea this morning of biblical justice. Now, 
in the time that we live in, there's a lot of pressure around the, the idea of social justice. Very popular idea in our time. Uh, Dr. Vodi Bakum, who is himself an African-American man who was raised in South L.A. in a fatherless home and lives today in Zambia, Africa, where he teaches in a, a university there, has said that Christians should not utter the term social justice. Well, wait a minute. The reality is that there's a big difference between the social justice of our time that's become largely politicized and so forth and biblical justice to which Moses calls his people here and is throughout scripture as we'll see this morning that's an imperative. So let's, I want to take a tangential couple of minutes here away from the immediacy of the text and define our terms a little bit. So what is social justice as it's constituted in our time? One of the proponents of social justice, secular scholar named William H. Young, says social justice is the state's redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. In other words, social justice is the state's redistributive justice, a material process of sort of leveling the playing field for certain groups that the state determines are disadvantaged. And we're going to make the case this morning, that's actually not biblical justice. Biblical justice, I think you'll see, though, is actually more costly than social justice of our time. Uh, uh, Sort of an academic definition of biblical justice by William Wolfe is treating others in such a way as to uphold God's standard of good and evil and rendering judgments uh, through judicial enforcement, enforcement, punishing wrongdoers and rewarding those that are uh, injured, according to, to that. Now, because we're in a church this morning, because this is a sermon, because my audience this morning, I'm going to assume most of you are Christians who are walking with Christ, I want to give you what I think is as succinct as we can get, a biblical definition of what biblical justice actually is. Biblical justice starts with the scriptures teaching that every person, that all of us are created with a divine dignity as image bearers of God. So every culture, every socioeconomic group, every ethnicity, every individual is created as the pinnacle of God's creative work in Genesis with unique and divine dignity. This is what undergirds our Bill of Rights in this country. Co-equal to that, every person is also, has, is also equal, if you will, at the foot of the cross in need of a savior. Paul makes this point, uh, he belabors it in Romans chapters 1 through 3, where he says, the bad person, the good person, and even the religious person, they're all lost and in need of a savior. Every single one of us, you and me included. And so we have this divine dignity of human beings that is unique and set apart from the animal kingdom, quite frankly, but we also have this lostness where we are all broken under the wrath of God and in need of a savior. And so how does that bear itself out in this idea of justice when Moses says, the Lord your God loves the orphan, the widow, and and the immigrant, and therefore you must too, in light of what he's just said about being faithful to God, walking with God, so on and so forth. Well, we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. You see, biblical justice seeks to model reconciliation and restoration. Reconciliation, that is forgiveness and healed relationships. Restoration, that is wholeness as the means to rectifying the wrongs of our world. And the Christian is called to do this even at cost to oneself. 
even when it comes to the fatherless, the widow, the alien, foreigner, or immigrant. Now, one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years related to this area of social justice versus biblical justice that I've observed in the church is Christians are actually reticent to help the less fortunate lest they be lumped into this idea of social justice, which comes with the, uh, the, the idea of, of oppression and retribution and redistribution. And so Christians are doing less social justice because they don't want to be labeled with ultimately socialist or, or Marxist labels. And so let me give you a, a thought and then an illustration on that. So where that happens is, is where it comes to immigration. And people will say, well, there's a, there's a framework for how someone is legitimately an immigrant. You see that in Israel, right? It wasn't just anybody who was a resident alien. There was a process. But here's the deal. As far as I know, most of you in this room, and I'd include myself, we're not the ones who are setting public policy, right? No one's asking us individually what we think. But we are the ones who interact in the world with people who are in all kinds of need and all kinds of backgrounds. And so we approach this issue where the Bible calls us to meet the needs of those who are less fortunate from the mindset of public policy. Set that aside. Let me illustrate that for you. Many years ago, I was on the streets uh, on a Friday night with Malta, a local organization that serves the homeless. I was there with a, a bunch of teenagers, and I was ministering to this couple, this young Hispanic couple, um, just praying with them and talking with them and through an interpreter and, and prayed over them and, and just had some fellowship. And they were just in a really, really tough spot. Young family, four-month-old baby. And they had run out of formula. They didn't have diapers. I don't remember exactly what their housing situation was, whether they were low-income housing or, or homeless. I don't remember. But they were in great need, and I was moved by their situation. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't ask them about their, uh, their situation in terms of their immigration status or anything like that. I went home and I said to my wife, we have to do something for this poor family. Now, it just so happened, right, in the providence of God, it just so happened that we had been stockpiling formula because my wife was breastfeeding. We had little, little kids. And, and we had been given, as you often get when you're new parents, you get given samples of formula. We'd been collecting. We had three babies in a row. Like, life was crazy. We had all this formula stockpiled. And so I put a bunch of formula in a, in a bag with some diapers, and I drove over to New London. It was like, I don't know, 11, 11.30 at night. I found this family and gave them the stuff. Now, I'm not sharing that to toot my own horn. There have been many other times where I haven't taken opportunities I should have. But here's the point. This is the heart of a, a circumcised heart, right? A tender heart towards someone in need. And I think that the church in the last couple of years has, again, been sort of reticent to help because they don't want to be put in a particular box. And so whether you have the definition straight or not, we are called to biblical justice. And again, to kind of separate it for you, biblical justice is about reconciliation and restoration, not retribution not state redistribution. And so Christians should be modeling that. If you've been kind of following along this morning, you'll recognize that indeed, biblical justice is more costly in my life, or it ought to be. But what's the pattern of biblical justice in the Bible? Moses kind of uh, makes mention of it here. We're actually, we actually can see that, that justice is something that's patterned from in, the, in the law of Moses and then in the prophets. It reaches its full flower in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's expected in our Christian lives. In the Bible, there aren't forms of justice in as much as there is justice and injustice. And the essence is do the right thing. And in the context here, for those who are widows, orphans, and outcasts, or immigrants, or foreigners, 
So let's look at those four areas. The, the law of Moses, the prophets, the gospel in our Christian lives. Number one, Moses is speaking right out of Leviticus 19 here in Deuteronomy 10, which says, when an alien, we'll use the word foreigner here, resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the foreigner who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And note he anchors it in who God is. I am the Lord your God. What about in Isaiah? Isaiah is rebuking, of all things, the hypocrisy of the religion of his people. And he says this, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. And note how he says how to do that. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are crimson, they shall be like wool. We quote that passage often as a picture of the gospel, what it is. But the gospel is fleshed out in how we respond to those who are in need around us. What about the gospel itself? While the world teaches a persistent doctrine of retribution, the gospel offers a suffering Savior. A suffering Savior who calls together a body of people from every ethnicity, every socioeconomic background, every background possible. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers from each other, he's talking about, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Or John the apostle, when he's given this apocalyptic vision of the end of all things, and he sees the diverse people of God gathered together, he writes this in his revelation, he says, and they sang a new song. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and purchased people for God by your blood. There is the cross of Christ from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We've said over the last couple of years that the body of Christ is, is given the unity and diversity that the world is desperately trying to figure out. We already have it through the blood of Jesus. And it's so ingrained in the gospel that Jesus' lineage has four marginalized women, five really if you include Mary, most of whom are foreigners, who are non-Jews, in Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the full flower of biblical justice. In God, who sends his son, the innocent, to pay for the guilty at the ultimate cost for our salvation. So what about in our Christian lives? What is biblical justice? While the world teaches an irredeemable doctrine of, of oppression and oppressor, the, Christ, the Christian is called to embody the restorative power of two things, serving each other and forgiving each other. James chapter 1 says it this way, pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, my trespasses, your trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What we bring to the world is so much better 
And social justice, biblical justice, is that God has provided a way for restoration and healing that then we flesh out in the physical, in the here and now, by helping those in great need. Well, how do we do that this morning? I suspect that it's a lot less theoretical when you begin to think about it. It's about perhaps that Muslim neighbor who lives across the street or that single mom who's friends with your daughter or that family member who's in a completely different place in terms of political ideology than you but their life is a mess and they, and they have need or that person in your life who's about to lose their job and just needs help monetarily. And on and on we could go. There's a number, a number of ways we do that here at Groton Bible Chapel. Our partnership with Malta provides help for the homeless here in our community. Our partnership with CareNet provides help for those that are in a crisis pregnancy situation and advocates for the unborn. And there's a, uh, there are two relationships, one that's existing, one that's upcoming, that provide care for women in marginalized circumstances. These are some of the things we're doing. But, you know, as we start to think about application, I, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to invite our missions pastor, Mike Bontempo, to come up and just share from his heart uh, his passion for loving the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant and some of the things that are upcoming here at GBC. Mike? Sure. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, well, amazing how God's working in our midst. Um, we have this great opportunity that we already do, Malta. Uh, serve. These are great opportunities for you to get involved to help those people who are less fortunate than us uh, and be able to share with them how, who Christ is and how Christ can change their lives. Uh, but we got, a, we got another opportunity um, with Hope House. There's a, a place called Hope House, which is here in Groton, uh, which serves um, abused and battered women who may be coming out of bad relationship or may be coming out of just a, a bad time in their life. Uh, it's an opportunity for them to get their uh, feet underneath them uh, and for them to just uh, get absorbed into God's love. Um, we're, we're doing something that's called Adopt a Room. And I have to give uh, credit to Jim Adams. Uh, Jim runs our serve ministry, and he's been doing a lot of work over at uh, Hope House, helping them rebuild the, the house itself. And he and the director over there came up with this idea of, of small groups or families adopting a room at this house, that you can go in and you can just go paint, um, do some decorations in the area, um, or you know, put some furniture in, and, and who knows, maybe you'll get an opportunity to reach out to the, to the lady who's going to be staying in that room. Um, it's a way to be able to, as I look at it, when I look at the orphans and widows, I think of single moms. Um, so it's a great opportunity to reach out to them. And Gary talked about the foreigner, uh, the immigrants. Uh, we have this great um, new relationship that we're building uh, with a gentleman by the name of Pete Ballantyne up in Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, Pete comes from Westerly. He was mentored by three of the, the greats here at GBC, Dave Reed, uh, Frank Vitale, and Andy Bonner. And he grew and became a pastor, ended up being a pastor of a very affluent church, but God pulled him out of there uh, to go into this um, immigrant city of Lynn, Mass., and head up this church called Washington, Washington Street Baptist Church. Um, we want to partner with him uh, because Lynn, Massachusetts, I don't know if you know, but it's an immigrant city. There's over 120 immigrant groups that are there. Um, they come into Boston and they end up at Lynn. Many of them don't have a whole lot of money. Uh, they don't have any connections. Um, 
So this is their opportunity to come in and, and, and get fed, um, not only physically, but spiritually. Uh, so we'll be working with them, doing some projects uh, to help repair, some of the, repair that church, uh, which is in desperate need of repair, but also to reach out to some of those people uh, in the community. Uh, so we'll be announcing some of those things. As Gary mentioned, you know, um, if you need a heart to do this, just think about worship this morning. When I sang, I'm a child of God, and I sang how much Jesus loves me, I was so happy, guys. I don't know about you, but I was like in tears uh, thinking about this. And if you need a heart, that's the reason why you should share it to the people. Don't worry about them having to make a decision or talking to, them, talking to them to make that decision. That's God's job. But somebody needs to introduce them to the love of Christ. And that's us. That's our job. So whether it's, you know, Malta, Serve, Hope House, Navajo Nation, whatever it may be, or maybe the person across the street, just go do it. Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. So Micah 6, 8, again, sort of sums up everything we're talking about. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy. That is to love, to, to meditate on, to comprehend, to appreciate, to appropriate the mercy of God, the grace of God in the gospel that we have. What Mike just talked about. And walk humbly with your God. I wonder this morning, how is it that God is calling you to do that? Now, this is a picture of my children on that bench in Niantic many years ago. And one of the things we talk about from time to time here, we talked about it a lot in our centennial a couple of years ago, is we stand on the shoulders who come before us. This is something that Mike really modeled well, love God and love others. So I want my children to know his legacy. But I want that to be multiplied, that that would be my legacy and your legacy, that we would be known for a, a, a love of God that then compels us to love those around us no matter what those situations and scenarios might be. And so I want to pray for us this morning and encourage us to kind of just leave with that mantra, uh, uh, speaking to our hearts in the Holy Spirit, to love God and love others. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the reminder from Moses that everything that you are calling your people to do, both in the Old and the New Testament, was driven by uh, the nature and the majesty, the holiness and the faithfulness and love of you, God. That you are God of all gods and Lord of all lords who does not show partiality or favoritism, who does not take bribes, but loves the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. And as Moses reminds us and Paul later, that apart from Christ, we are foreigners to your kingdom, O God. But because of the gospel, we're brought near, and that gives us a passion and a heart to introduce others to that. Whether that's through the giving of a cold glass of water, that leads to the message of Christ or whatever that might be. Would you help us this week to be a community of your people that are different because we love you and love others. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.